Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. <laughs> and I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. Welcome back. So as longtime listeners of the show know, whenever we do one massive month that ends up getting broken into episodes, we record it on the same night. So we are going to record with the second half of the recording that you heard last time. And let's go ahead and jump into the second half of the books from July 1964. July 1964. Okay, let's do it. Tales of Suspense with Iron Man. This is another second part of a two-parter here where... Iron Man, last we saw, was in China uh, fighting the Mandarin, even though we'd gone to Vietnam and the Mandarin seems to be in Western China and, you know, all those Asian countries are all close together, right? So <laughs> last we left off, Iron Man had been tied up by a bunch of cables by the Mandarin who is now going to destroy him. Um, now, one thing that I, right here on the splash page that I find interesting, Mandarin is saying to Iron Man, Iron Man, are you mad? You dare smile in the face of death? I'm like, um, how can you tell he's smiling? You know, heck is not meeting Lee no. halfway here. Like, you clearly cannot tell if he is smiling or frowning. You know, the text says, amazingly, a smile appears in the iron countenance of the trapped man. Well, that would be rather amazing. In fact, it does not happen. There's clearly no smile on that, you know, frozen metal ma mask. But the Mandarin picks up in a right away. I remember you mad you just smile in the face of death. Like, where is he getting this from? Yeah. Uh, well, and this, you know, later when Gene Colan becomes the regular artist on Iron Man, uh, he would often render Iron Man's mask in ways that did sort of uh, appear to show various emotions just by the angles he would choose. So if this were Gene Colan, you could probably get away with that line a little bit better. Yeah. So the Mandarin goes ahead and says, oh, I'll go ahead and use my rings to lock this whole trap system with these cables. And now you're trapped and I'm going to go off and do this other stuff I need to do because he's a dumb supervillain. And that's what happened. Having escaped his bonds, he chases the Mandarin down, follows him down into his lower lair and sees the machinery that he uses to steal these missiles. Now, once again, this missile has been launched from Vietnam and is supposedly also going to land somewhere in Vietnam. And Iron Man just flew up from Mandarin's castle in the Chinese mountains to go and save this <laughs> missile. Don't try to make it work, Steve. Yeah, just, the don't, don't worry. I'm not going to. <laughs> So uh, anyway, that beam attracts Iron Man back instead of the missile. Uh, Iron Man has the clever idea of ripping a stone out of the window of the castle as he's pulled in it and uses that stone to hurl at the machinery and destroys the machinery. And the uh, Mandarin says, oh, it's going to take me years to rebuild that thing. So now he's just plain mad and is coming after him. Apparently, we learn that one of his rings has a disintegrator uh, power. So we're learning more of the powers of the rings as we go forward here. I think the previous issue we'd gotten the black light uh, ring, and yeah. Uh, so yeah, we're we're getting we're getting this fleshed out a little bit here, bit by bit. So then we switch back to New York City, or I guess to Flushing Queens, I should say, where Tony has has just left Happy and Pepper in charge of the whole company, and like they're <laughs> making executive decisions. Now, for those <laughs> only really familiar with the movies, this might seem to make more sense. They're much more believable as being able to do that uh particularly pepper but here in the comics 
this is his chauffeur who had been a prize fighter until the moment he became his chauffeur and just his office assistant. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And they have some fun with that and that happy has been trying to make these executive design decisions and stuff like that. And they turn out terribly. They're like, he's even been inventing weapons. Like not only is he running the cut, not only is he like in charge of inventory and payroll and everything like that. He's also been like, there's the trouble. They built the new transistor-powered howitzer to your specifications. Now they want to know, are you kidding? And he's been building these very silly weapons that he's the only thing he can design. So on the one hand, like, this is so dumb. Like, that's not how any of this would work. Like, this doesn't make any sense. On the other hand, it's like, this is the only fun thing about this issue. We have a tremendously <laughs> unfun fight against the Mandarin. And the idea that Happy has been left in charge of the company, it's like, well, on the one hand, that's really dumb and makes no sense. On the other hand, like, at least I'm having a good time. <laughs> there you go that and that that's what really counts when you're reading a silver age comics right so we go back to the fight iron man is smashed at one point by like a giant stone block on a big compressed spring that actually punches him through the floor and he leaves a uh like a looney tunes looking hole yes. you know iron man shaped hole in the ceiling above him As though he's the coyote or something like that. Iron Man finds the Mandarin again, but the Mandarin is suddenly giant, like super giant. And Iron Man tries to attack him, and it turns out it was all something done with mirrors, which is a little weird. And then some more optical tricks where there's a whole army of Mandarins, and he's trying to figure out which one it is. Mandarin, once again, is using his karate skills because, you know, he is this Chinese warrior. Uh, who, of course, knows karate. You know, I was just thinking, you know, at some point, some future writer should have been having the Mandarin saying, and now I will attack you using my karate. Wait, I mean, kung fu skills. Crap, have I been saying karate this whole time? (laughs) Man, that wouldn't make any sense. As you pointed out when somebody posted this on Facebook, it's like, but the very next split second, a rock hard hand lashes out in a savage karate blow. And Iron Man, he's like karate chopping at Iron Man's helmet, which just makes no sense. And then Iron Man thinks, woo, I deflected that swipe just in time. A blow like that could have felled an oak. Like, yes, but oaks are impressive, but they are not as strong as iron. Even if it could have felled an oak, it still couldn't fell you, Iron Man. <laughs> uh, yeah, one would think. And that, that's, I was a little, uh, a little confused by that. In the end, so and then we find out that these missiles have been landing like as though they were 1950s science fiction spaceships that, you know, from an EC science fiction comic or something like yes, that. Or Duck like Dodgers land- cartoon or something. Right, exactly. And they apparently have enough fuel in them to fly back to where they're supposed to be. <laughs> so uh, Iron Man is able to fly them back. Then he then proved that he wasn't making shoddy work, that uh, everything was being sabotaged. He then heads back to his headquarters and, you know, had felt really bad last time we saw him think about Pepper and happy about how prickly he had been to them last time he had seen them. So he comes back and he is very effusive to see them again, but happy ends up very upset that Tony is so happy to see Pepper. Uh, And it seems that there does seem to be a bit of a romance blossoming there at this point. Yes. So you, you didn't say that Iron Man, the Mandarin had found that Iron Man had wrecked his machine and Iron Man had left a little dainty note saying, better luck next time, signed Iron Man. So he's actually got a cursive Iron Man signature for when he wants to sign Iron Man notes. Yes. Oh, and he refers to the Mandarin as Mandy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, 
Yeah, well, you know, would be a good way to get the Mandarin's goat. I'm sure he does not like being called Mandy. <laughs> oh, Mandy, you came. Anyway, uh, so if uh, Magneto can have a dainty little cursive signature, you know, that he does in the air, then why can't Iron Man in his little post-it notes? Then after that, we've got a feature all about Iron Man that just, you know, shows you his lame rogues gallery. Uh, shows you about all the transistors and various stuff that's hidden in various parts of his of his um, armor and how it works and how it collapsed down into the attache case. Here they say those little circular pods on his hips are stuff for his radio, uh, additional transistors for a, my built-in radio system. Uh, in our time, in the 80s, I'm pretty sure those were his power batteries, if I recall correctly. Um, but, you know, he had redesigned a suit several times since then, so that makes sense. Then more stuff about how his armor flexes, various little things like that. Finally, we have a Pepper Potts pinup page. Where does it see? When first introduced in Tales of Suspense, Pepper had been a perky, pug-nosed, freckle-faced imp. But after she realized how Tony Stark feels about glamorous females, Pepper went to her beauty parlor and shot the works. Today, she was one of the most gorgeous females in comics or anywhere else. So they do acknowledge that she was not introduced as a great beauty. Yeah. Um, so at least they're playing at least they're playing somewhat fair there, even though I still don't quite buy that that this kind of transformation would really be uh in the cards. So uh do we want to discuss that before moving on to Tales of the Watcher or let it stand as it is? Well, again, they're sort of dealing with the fact that they no longer have science fiction stories in the middle of their books anymore. And so then they sort of like, oh, right, we have to tack on an extra five pages. So they sort of have this uh, this facts about Iron Man five pages, which is fine. Sort of thing that would be used to pad out annuals a lot in the future. Mandarin is a good villain in that he is more substantial than some of the other Iron Man villains. But he is still ultimately pretty lame. And this is a pretty lame issue and a pretty lame fight. As I said, the only fun to be had in this issue is watching Happy Treader on the company which takes a lot of suspension of disbelief to buy, but at least it's fun. And it's fun at the end when Happy tries to break up Tony and Pepper by riding on a rocky road and ends up getting a blowout in a pothole. And then Tony and Pepper go for a romantic walk in the moonlight while Happy has to change the tire. So that's fun. Yeah, I, I really like Happy Hogan, when, especially when he is handled visually by Don Heck. Yeah. Happy drawn by Don Heck is fantastic. Uh, happy drawn by other people, he sort of starts to lose me very quickly. But uh, no, it's nice to see some of that sad sack kind of a thing. All right, quickly, we will deal with Tales of the Watcher. It's called the Sun Stealer. He first lands and it's like, oh, I need your help. Watcher, watcher, quick, I need your help. And the watcher's like, I'm sorry, I can only watch. And he's like going, oh, well, then that's fine, because I actually wanted to prove that you wouldn't help somebody even if they desperately needed help, because that means I can attack the earth and you're not going to help anybody. And the watcher's like, well, that's true. I'm not going to help anybody. And he's like, aha, then I'm going to destroy the entire earth. And the watcher's like, hmm, tell me more. <laughs> it's, like going, <laughs> it's like going, what is the maximum energy output of the magnetogravity machine? What is the machine's range? What happens when it hits space and time barriers? And the guy's like, okay, fine, I'll answer all of your questions. And it's like, oh, no, my, my ship sunk into the bog. You knew that was going to happen. Since you must have known this. That's why you encouraged me to talk to talk until it was too late. Now I'm going to die. It's like going, no, no, you can't just let me die. It's like going, I cannot help you. I am forbidden to act, forbidden to interfere with the workings of destiny. I can do nothing but stand and watch, <laughs> which is just like, <laughs> oh, it's so badass. I love this story. 
I think the art is very weak. You know, it's funny. We have Lieber penciling and inking here, and it's very weak. And then we have later on the Wasp backup tale, it's Lieber penciling and Jackson inking, and it's shockingly good. Yeah. <laughs> I think Lieber is not his own best friend here. Lieber can be a good penciler with a better inker, better than he himself. Actually, I hadn't noticed that Lieber inked this himself. I think this is the first time we've seen Lieber ink himself uh, since we've been doing this, right? And that could just be false. It could be they just forgot to list who the inker was. It's certainly very weak, and I don't think this looks like Lieber's inks, but I love <laughs> I love these Uatu stories. I think that Marvel has just spent the last 60 years endlessly plumbing and replumbing the value of these 60s stories. Except for Uatu. Uatu became the host of What If eventually, but in terms of actually starring in his own stories where he is, you know, dealing with evil in his own inimitable way, we wouldn't get a lot of those stories going forward. And right. uh, it's a lot of fun to see in this story. This <laughs> is a very clever story. Uh, yeah, and I, I like, once again, that they are um, just sort of playing with the idea of the parameters they've set for the Watcher. You know, they we now know why he has this oath. We now know, and, you know, they just keep, this is the, I think, third story in a row, spending the entire story sort of, you know, unpacking what this means and how this can be an interesting character who can't act. And, you know, what the moral repercussions of that are and, you know, how that can be used to his advantage and various things like that, which I think is an interesting set of issues to look at. That's fascinating. So let's move on to Tales of Astonish. Okay, so Tales of Astonish, Giant Red and the Wonderful Wasp on the trail of Spider-Man. And we have a nice Kirby cover. We'll not have nice Kirby insights, but nice Kirby cover of Spider-Man tangling up uh, Giant Man. Although Kirby's Spider-Man always a little off model and the and the webs that are tangling up Giant Man don't exactly look like Rico webs. But, yeah, they, uh, they, they, they look like Linguini. <laughs> yeah. So then we get to the issue, which is unfortunately not drawn by Kirby. It is Pencil by Dick Ayers, inked by Paul Reinman. Paul Reinman, Marvel's best inker, but not a good combo with Ayers. Just not good art in this issue. It's a real shame. We yeah. begin with the Wasp is told, Jan, honey, become normal size quickly. I've got a surprise for you. I think you're going to like it. She's like, tell me, Hank, is it fur, jewelry, perfume? And, of course, he bought her a diamond engagement ring last issue. He never gave her, but that's seemingly forgotten. So uh, that would make her happy, presumably. But uh, he's apparently decided after she dated another dude in that issue that she's just never going to get that. Instead, he has done something that is long overdue in this book. He is finally giving her a weapon. There was a brief period where she would fly around with a little pin and poke people with the pin. But other than that, she has just been a big ball of uselessness. And so now she is getting a rather bizarre weapon. You would think like, okay, she's going to get her little sting, her wasp sting, where she shoots lasers at people, right? Well, not quite yet. First, she gets an air gun, which is rather strange, where she yeah. can just shoot compressed air at people. But he does call it a wasp sting, but, uh, but it's a compressed air gun. But it is long overdue. It is nice to give her a little bit of weapon. We then cut to Egghead, who is still funny, and gets some Egghead convinces, well, now, in, he tried to turn the ants against Ant-Man before. This time, it seems like he's not trying to, like, do any sort of moral suasion to turn them against Ant-Man. He's just duping them into sending Ant-Man some false information somehow. The ants tell Giant-Man that Spider-Man is out to get him. Spider-Man is out trying to kill him, and that he has to go kill Spider-Man before Spider-Man can kill him. Hank sends Jan and says, uh, Jan, go find him, but don't actually do anything about it yourself. 
Uh, of course, Chan has her nifty new weapon. So Chan goes out and finds Spider-Man. She's like, I'm going to attack Spider-Man with my weapon. And she indeed shoots Spider-Man out of the air and Spider-Man goes plummeting. That gets things off to a bad start. He then webs up Chan. Hank's like, oh my God, I told you not to do anything. And Hank does his bizarre skyhook thing to pull himself out of his building, goes and fights Spider-Man. And, and, of course, and of course, he seems to land right where Spider-Man is. Apparently, this was happening literally at the base of his building. Seemingly. Egghead says, all right, now let's call the cops and report that these two are fighting and that they're both bad guys. Uh, the cops come. Then Egghead and his goons go like, all right, now that Spider-Man, Spider-Man and Wasp are fighting and the cops are involved, all the cops in the town are now there. It says, with the police sending every available man to the east side of town, we'll be able to move freely on the west side. So they go over to the west side. They have a huge truck that sucks up an armored truck. It must be a very huge truck that can fit an armored truck safely inside it. And they suck it up. And then back over on the east side of town, Giant Man, Ant-Man of the Wasp, they have to work together and they have to go stop Egghead, which they do. And Wasp kicking a lot of ass with her new air gun. And it yep. turns out to be a very effective little weapon. And it's fun to see her actually get to do some actual ass kicking. They defeat Egghead. Egghead says, uh, look, giant man, there's no need for us to be enemies. There's still enough stolen loot here for all of us to divide. It says, for shame, Egghead, you know money is the root of all evil. He says, uh, well, how about you, Spider-Man? If you beat giant man for me, uh, <laughs> forget it. Why don't you ask me for something easy, like bring a Fort Knox? But then you get this bizarre ending to the issue where Egghead is taken off to prison, presumably. And then everything, this is when the heroes are all supposed to be like the Fantastic Four and X-Men were like, well, you're a swell bunch of chums, we now recognize. But no, because Wasp and Spider-Man absolutely hate each other. And Spider-Man says, well, I guess you don't need me here anymore. And Wasp says, I've got news for your son. We never did. And Spider-Man's like, I wasn't talking to you, lady. I wouldn't waste my breath. Oh, go on back to your slimy old spiders and good riddance. I'll take spiders over those useless flying wasps any day. Thank goodness he's gone. Oh, of all the nasty, hateful, unpleasant people I've ever met. And then Hank says, he's a handy lad to have around in a pinch, honey. It's unfortunate that spiders and wasps are natural enemies. And apparently that's just what's going on here now is that, and they, they hinted at this before when Spider-Man tried out for joining the Avengers, that just because spiders and wasps are natural enemies and because apparently Spider-Man has the actual personality of a spider, which has never actually come up before, and the wasp has the actual personality of a wasp. Never mind that wasp, at least Spider-Man has some spider blood coursing through his veins. Wasp has no wasp <laughs> blood in her veins whatsoever. But she has enough of well, the I, natural I there, qualities I of some wasp. wasp. I think there were some wasp cells that he grafted into her shoulders in order or into her, her shoulder blades for the wings to come out. I think that that actually was some sort of wasp material that he used to do that. All right. <laughs> but I think for some reason, these two hate each other's guts and it is fun to watch them just tear into each other, but utterly bizarre and suffice it to say something that would get dropped in later years. I think in the comics these days, there is no natural hatred between Wasp and Spider-Man. I'll point out that I really think of spiders and ants as being more natural enemies. Spiders <laughs> yeah. tend to eat ants. <laughs> yeah. I don't think spiders are really attacking wasps. But, or vice versa so it doesn't even the premise doesn't really make any sense to me but uh you know what you gonna do good point but egghead issues are never great issues 
this is not a great issue. You know, if you got to have Tron Man comics, sure, have him fight Spider-Man. We always love to see heroes who get tricked into fighting each other and then team up to fight the bad guy. It's a perfectly fine serviceable issue. Ayers is a fine penciler. Reinman is an excellent anchor. Together, they're surprisingly weak. It's bad art, so-so writing. But, you know, there are worse jobs in the world than having to read these comics and comment on them for a podcast. Uh, jobs? Are, are you getting paid? because <laughs> because if so i need to have words with somebody okay so a couple of things i want to point out just some silly stuff in the issue so in the middle of page eight spider-man webs up giant man and says correction high pockets you didn't grab me i've got you tangled in my web is this the first time we've heard the nickname high pockets in the marvel <laughs> universe so far i think just Anyone who looks at Giant Man would go like, oh, that's Giant Man. The obvious nickname for him would be High Pockets because lots of people use it from this point on. And yeah. it, is, it never stops sounding weird. Like, really? You all independently came up with the name High Pockets? So, yes, I think this may be our first High Pockets. Uh, and also, I know that Mr. Fantastic was called High Pockets at least once when he was stretching. Ah, so was this yeah. a thing? Were tall people or stretchy people called high pockets back then? I don't know. It may have been a thing uh, or it may, you know, who knows? But one way or the other, somebody called uh, Mr. Fantastic high pockets at some point in the future from here. Um, on page nine, at the very upper left-hand corner, I really do like the uh, image of Giant Man bouncing off the roof of a police car to get up to the surface that Spider-Man is crawling on. Uh, that's just a lot of fun when you are able to play with your environment that way in Silver Age comics. Then one last thing, on page 12, there's a scene where Spider-Man is trying to get across town to go and get Egghead and the bad guys. And uh, he says to himself, I may not have a flying ant to ride, but I'll. But my little old web will get me there even faster. But the way his web is drawn in that in that panel... I don't think Dick Ayers gets how the web swinging thing is supposed no. to work. This is Spider-Man is about to go splat. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I posted about this on our Facebook page and some various people have pointed out. It's like, oh, well, it could be like a spider who has one big long strand of web and is using it to be blown across to where they want to go. I'm like, eh, OK, but I've never seen him do that before or since uh, someone else said, oh, yeah, he's just webbed himself onto a fast moving vehicle and he's like basically parasailing. I'm like, that's the best explanation I can come up with for this. But that's that's about it. So just we originally had in the back of Iron Man, we had the Watcher just as a host for science fiction tales, which makes sense. That's something the Watcher is naturally suited to do. But then in the back of Tales to Astonish, we started having Wasp as host of science fiction tales, which was bizarre. And then eventually they moved the Watcher to actually starring in his own stories. And now with this issue, they move the Wasp to starring in her own stories. They make it clear that she's still telling the tales. She says, those tales I told at the state orphanage took longer than I expected. But now we see what happens after that. Is we see her have an actual little adventure here. And she is rushing off to meet Hank for a date. She sees well, I, I, I really like the credits in the beginning of this story. That's probably my yes. favorite part of the entire story. Ring-a-ding story by Stan Lee. Jazzy script and art by Larry Lieber. Like Wow Man inking by Chick Stone and Far Out Lettering by Sam Rosen. Uh, I, I just find it funny that, you know, so just the sort of mixture of where we were in the 60s and what kinds of slang that 
uh, Stan Lee might be you know, <laughs> aware of or looking to use. Yes. So Lieber penciling and seemingly inking himself in the back of Iron Man and the Watcher story looked terrible. Lieber inked by Chick Stone, shockingly good in the story. I think it's yeah. a really nicely drawn and inked story. Um, she is going to meet Hank when she sees a dude just climbing down into a manhole and closing it up after himself. She's like, well, I guess there's nothing suspicious about that. Then she sees that a jewelry store has been broken into and realizes like, oh yeah, that dude was totally up some. So she flies down into the manhole, catches up to the dude, tries to tie his shoelaces together, which uh, <laughs> does not work because he moves too quickly for to be caught by that. They have to make note that this is before she was given her wasp sting because she has to go and pick up a push pin which she is using to uh, try to get him. But then eventually she decides the way to beat him is she picks up a little piece of paper, turns it into a megaphone, and she announces to him, don't move, chum. This is Sue Storm, the invisible girl speaking, telling you to give yourself up. So the boss seems to have some self-esteem issues here. She's like, oh, I want this person to be intimidated that a superheroine is about to attack him. Heaven forbid I just say, this is the wasp, an actual superheroine who actually is about to attack you. Instead, I will claim to be the invisible girl. And even then, it's because he's afraid of the thing. But then he's like, okay, I'll go ahead and turn myself in. So then she catches up to Hank and says, I'm sorry, I had to stop Joel Thief. He's like, no, I heard on the radio. It was Sue Storm, the invisible girl who stopped, who stopped that thief. Now, I got to say, it is to her credit that she does not go like, oh, I can't possibly explain the truth to him now. No, she's like, oh, well, let me explain what happened. <laughs> why I claim to be Sue Storm, and he just won't believe her. But I, I like that, unlike in so many 60s comics, she does at least realize, oh, I can just explain what happened, although it doesn't work. And so then he says, maybe next time she'll think twice before she hands me a phony excuse like that. She thinks, I always knew there'd be days like this. I wonder where a gal could sell a secondhand wasp costume real cheap. The end. But it's fun to get her actually starring in her own story, although a story that, you know, they have to specifically point out, like, uh, this is back when she was so useless, and in fact, she is so so totally useless that in order to be effective, she has to pretend to be another superheroine. But it's a fun little story. Okay, so let's move on to X-Men number six. Submariner joins the evil mutants. So I think that we discussed earlier uh, in the X-Men's existence, like in the first couple of issues, Stan Lee really started leaning into this whole idea of mutants that he really liked the idea and started slipping it in various places. I thought they had already mentioned the idea that Submariner might be a mutant then, but maybe I was just thinking of this story here. One way or the other, we are going to get to see them. We start out with a lovely splash page. Uh, the splash page on this issue is tons of fun. There's lots of character, lots of, you know, story being told by just people sitting around doing their various antics at the table. Very nicely rendered. I love Hank's face. I love Warren's face. Uh, I love Bobby's face. Uh, Bobby is making the ice cream right here. Yes, as we so see. this page was, this page was reprinted in the No Prize, in the No Prize book. We've been, we've been wondering when we would get to this No Prize page of Bobby using his powers to turn his pie into pie a la mode. So apparently he has not just the ability to create ice, but the ability to create ice cream. Uh, may maybe he's just putting wet snow on it and calling it ice cream. Just, you know, he's like, oh, I can at least pretend. Um, but, then, but then we also, of course, well, we have Professor X 
saying, it was a delicious meal, Gene. Thank you for helping out on the cook's day off. Now, I don't think we've ever seen a cook before or since, but uh, it does make sense there'd be other staff around here other than just Professor X. But then she says, I was glad to do it, Professor. And, you know, of course, this is 1964. So the assumption is, oh, the professional cook isn't here. So let's see, do we have a woman? Do we have a woman? Yes, we have a woman. Can you go cook us some food? I, I find it a fascinating page because of how charming it is and because of what it says about the time that it's in. So for whatever reason, both Professor X and Magneto both get the idea at the same time that Submariner is a mutant and we must recruit him. And it's just one of those sorts of things where, you know, it's like, how did this idea come into the both their heads at the same time? I feel time? like even oh. Professor X is reading a newspaper where there's an article saying, where is Submariner? Coast Guard patrols keep constant sea watch. I feel like even if there had been an article in the newspaper going like, Submariner, is he a mutant? You know, here is, you know, some experts weighing in on the thought that he might be a mutant. That would totally explain why both Professor X and Magneto are suddenly like, oh, wait, Submariner is probably a mutant. We should try to we should try to recruit him for our side. But instead, no, there is absolutely no reason for them both to suddenly get the same wild hair at the exact same time. Well, there is a reason. The plot demanded it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> We get to see a bunch of uh, the completely dysfunctional Brotherhood of Evil Mutants all snipping at each other and attacking each other and annoying each other, including Mastermind making Magneto think that Cyclops has just arrived. Magneto takes this big weapon he was going to use to intimidate Submariner and shoots it at Cyclops. But of course, it's not Cyclops. It's an illusion created by Mastermind. Uh, and it's, and then... a, it's a pretty awesome gun. It is. Oh, yeah. It's an awesome Kirby gun. It it very much is. This is the kind of thing that the guy that the image guys in the nineties were trying to uh <laughs> were trying yeah. to echo and it just didn't work well. This beam of power that was supposed to knock down Cyclops just goes down the hallway because Cyclops wasn't there, and Quicksilver realizes that it's about to hit his sister Scarlet Witch, so he uses his super speed to knock her out of the way and save her. Um they are clearly getting more and more fed up with, uh, you know, their feeling of debt to um, Magneto, but they haven't yet done anything about it. But it's clear that they are moving in that direction. So then, uh, you know, it's interesting how fast and loose they played with powers back in these days. Magneto, it says, thus the leader of the evil mutants, whose brain power is second only to that of Professor X, transforms his vast mental energy into an illusory figure of himself and sends it forth. So he can actually do astral projection, according to this, which, you know, I'm pretty sure goes away. <laughs> he would know. He would do this. I feel like there was at least one comic from the 80s where he did this, where he still had the ability to at least meet Xavier on the mental, on the astral plane. Yes. Yeah. Now, I, I do. I do. But I think they sort of then were that playing at that point with it as essentially Professor X has communicated with him and they now have sort of a bond where yeah. magneto can call him mentally but it's not like magneto has uh mental powers that he can use outside of just chatting with charles <laughs> right um <clears throat> so because charles is in charge yes all right so then we see a little bit of the danger room and everybody using their powers professor x sees that they are doing what they need to do so then he sends his astral projection self 
out into the ocean to go look for a submariner. Now, oddly, his astral projection self has to walk down into the ocean in order to do this instead of like flying or swimming or something like that. Uh, seems like it's going to take a while. Both he and Magneto uh, both have their astral projections reaching the same point at close to the same time. But Magneto gets there first. Submariner is, meanwhile, having a whole hissy fit about how useless his royal prerogatives are if he can't have what he really wants, which is basically Sue Storm. <laughs> but then Magneto is like, well, approaching him directly probably wouldn't work out very well. So I've got another sneakier idea. So he comes to one of uh, Submariner's lackeys and promises him great power if he then convinces Submariner to join Magneto. The lackey can see Magneto. Usually when someone is doing projection of their mental state, the person can't see them. But but this person is like, what? Who are you? And can totally see Magneto, which is a little weird. Yeah, yeah, it is. But maybe when you've got an astral projection, you can, since you're doing mental powers anyway, you could like create an image of yourself in their head if need be. But, you know, that that's really not something we need to, uh, we need to try to get a new prize for. Professor X tells the X-Men that he's got a new mission for them. He has figured out that Magneto has an island in the middle of the Atlantic, and they are going to go out there to inspect. So he rents a sailboat. Sorry, they charter a sailboat to go take a little cruise, he says. Um, and we see the boat, and it's like a schooner or something like that, yes. <laughs> which looks which looks beautiful. You know, I, I'm, I'm liking the look of it, but it's just like, really, in 1964, you're going to go get a, you know, two or three masted sailboat? Okay, sure. And as a matter of fact, it looks almost like galleon sails. It looks like, you know, pre- it <laughs> looks like 1500s sails on there or something like that. Anyway, so uh, they're sending Angel flying around as a scout. Uh, so then we go back to Atlantis, where the lackey of Submariner is telling him about Magneto and saying, oh, yeah, he's a he's no mere human. He is a mutant, one of the most powerful on Earth, the same as you are. Namor says, I, a mutant? Why has that thought never occurred to me before? So, um, you know, basically they've always played with him as just being a hybrid between um, Homo Mermanus and Homo sapiens. But in this case, you know, they're like, no, you're a mutant. And I think that later they've basically played that up as his ankle wings, which clearly are not human, nor are they Atlantean, uh, are some kind of a mutation. Right. Submariner shows up at Magneto's island. Submariner is trying to figure out whether it's worth his time and effort to pair with this guy. Magneto is trying to figure out how to best manipulate him to uh, do his bidding and have him be the leader while not actually saying, yes, you're my leader. He's then meeting the rest of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. It's not necessarily going that well. But then Angel shows up and just knocks into them like a bowling ball, bowling ball into some 10 pins here, which, you know, once again, if you just have flying capabilities, how exactly are you? Oh, okay. Yeah, you're just a blunt weapon yourself. Then Submariner flies up, intercepts him and hurls him back at the ship. Um, now, Angel does have his own wings, so they could just, you know, wait for him to you know, <laughs> recover his flying ability and fly back. But instead, uh, Beast jumps on the plank. So that's the other thing. The sailing <laughs> ship they chartered actually has a plank. <laughs> <laughs> 
um, that uh, that beast bounces off of and jumps up, tumbling over and over again to catch Warren. And you can't um, just build a three-masted sailing ship without a plank, you know. (laughs) It just comes with; it's just part of the kit. Yes. So then, uh, at that point, though, um, Magneto is able to use a big magnetic bolt of some sort to rip apart the sailing ship. Uh, now, I could be like, well, wood is clearly not magnetic, but there are going to be a lot of nails, a lot of, you know, fixtures, whatever. I, sure. I can buy that, right? I can, I can buy that. Everybody's hurling out. At one point, which which one is it who's saying this? Marvel Girl is saying, the professor, where is the professor? And Beast is saying, hang on, sir, I'll get you somehow. And then there's Professor X in his wheelchair falling into the sea with all sorts of heavy debris, including what looks like a barrel uh really near him and he's just saying don't worry about me hank make sure the others are safe it's like dude i think you're in some real peril here (laughs) but anyway the beast somehow is able to catch him while treading water in some way and then uh bobby makes a little ice bridge over the water it's a neat use of their powers they get to the island and there are these crazy thorny um vines that are there which uh, they're like, oh, no, how can we get past those? And Professor X is like, dude, it's Mastermind. Just walk right through him. Like, oh, yeah. Right, Mastermind. I completely forgot. Well, they did this with Legion of Superheroes, where they had Princess Projectra, Princess Projectra, Projecta, something like that, in Legion of Superheroes, who had illusion casting powers. And then eventually she realized, like, uh, my big problem is that as soon as I tell people I have illusion casting problems, they're like, well, then I'll just ignore whatever your illusions are. And then later she changed her name to Sensor Girl because she's like, I don't want anyone to know I have illusion casting powers. <laughs> like, as long as they don't know there's anybody in the Legion with illusion casting powers, then I'm like one of the most powerful members of the Legion. As soon as they know there's someone, then I'm completely useless. Yeah. <laughs> So anyway, uh, Scarlet Witch is very scared for her brother who is getting, uh, you know, the X-Men are definitely getting the upper hand on him and is asking Magneto to intervene. And he's just basically like, look, leave me alone or else you're going to be in the same trouble as well. So they're really getting the feeling that this loyalty does not go two ways here. uh, And that will come to a head soon. Submariner is just ticked off that Magneto is talking to Scarlet Witch that way. He says, I am the Submariner. I ally myself with no one who speaks to a female as you do. So they then get into a big supervillain fight. Right. So Magneto and Mastermind and Toad all are getting out of Dodge. And he's saying, Scarlet Witch, hurry. I've got to seal this door. Scarlet Witch says, no, I won't leave without my brother. I can't desert Pietro. And Magneto says, have it your way then. And just locks the door behind and leaves her. Toad is saying, we don't need her, Master. Her loyalty to you isn't as great as mine. Magneto thinks, loyalty? Bah, I rule by fear alone. So then uh, Professor X shows up. He has taken mental control of Quicksilver, but then brought him back. And so he releases him from mental control and uh, gives him back to his sister. Professor X says, stand fast, my X-Men. The Submariner is no murderer. He will not strike if we don't provoke him. It just seemed you guys were having a pretty big knockdown dragout fight yeah. a minute ago. Is that not a provocation? Uh, Submariner, meanwhile, just gets uh, ticked off and he leaves. Then we have this final panel where uh, Cyclops says, look, our prisoners are escaping. Professor X says, I allowed it. Until they join us of their own free will, they would be useless to us. 
Someday we must learn what mysterious hold Magneto has over them. So I guess when he says the prisoners, he's talking about Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch in particular. Uh, but then Jean says, I'm glad to see them go. That witch is much too attractive, which <laughs> it's like, you know, oh, that's a kind of a catty line for you to write there, Stan. <laughs> you know? But Warren says, you know something, Jeannie? So are you. So he's, you know, trying to be a smooth operator there. Meanwhile, Beast and Iceman, who are really sort of becoming a buddy pair in this, uh, and they will continue to become more so as their personalities develop, go down to find Magneto's boat because their boat has been ripped apart. Apparently, Magneto also has a sailboat that they yes. are now going to commandeer. A so only a two-masted scooter, though. So this is not as impressive as their three-masted scooter they had before. Yeah, so I, I don't necessarily know what the difference is between a schooner or a frigate. I don't know. Who knows? It's some other kind of sailing ship, which uh, does seem quite incongruous for 1964. Anyway, there we go. Um, This was an interesting issue to some extent. Uh, lots of silly stuff in here. But like I said, I love that splash page. I really like a lot of what they're doing with developing their personalities more. I don't know. I can't make up my mind about the idea of them considering Submariner a mute. I, I was about to say I like it, but there are some things about it that bother me. But, you know, that's fine. Uh, I like seeing uh, Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch starting to realize that they do not need to pledge this loyalty to Magneto because he is not ever going to show them any loyalty. I like all of the bickering and infighting and bullying that goes on inside the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Um, I think and I like Stan just loves the Brotherhood. I think Stan loves the Brotherhood more than he loves the X-Men. I think he just loves them riding each other and getting each other's goat to a certain extent, sort of like the Fantastic Four, uh, just getting in constant fights. I always just think it's delightful. Yeah, you know, there are some very silly things about this. You know, the Magneto's Island has a big magnetic something or other on it that it looks like a giant u-shaped magnet uh, <laughs> you know? yes. uh we have the whole thing about these wooden sailing ships that doesn't make any sense but makes for great visuals you know some of the conflict between magneto and submariner you know we're getting all these different combinations of characters that we can have now as we are multiplying the number of characters that are out here so you know stan can go ahead and combine these in all sorts of different ways and see well how would these two villains be like if they teamed up you know how would these two superheroes or superhero teams be like if they ran in ran afoul of each other and um they're just having more and more fun with this and this is precisely i think why the marvel universe has been the force that it has it's just that you know they do this sort of stuff they treat this whole thing as a cohesive universe uh, more so than any of the other comic companies had in the past uh, i like that overall it's not the best issue but um there's a lot to like about it yeah so this is definitely another get a room type situation with uh stanley and the submariner it's like clearly <laughs> you love submariner he appears almost every month in one book or another Maybe even actually every month. I don't know how many months we could go back and see. I know Submariner was in Fantastic Four last month. I think the month before that, he was in Adventures. Clearly, get a room. Go ahead and just give Submariner his own book. And I feel like this issue is, I said in my notes, a fun reshuffling of familiar elements. It's like, well, you know, at this point, Submariner is a familiar element and Magneto is a familiar element, but let's try reshuffling them and placing them together. But yeah, I do sort of miss like the early days of Marvel. I miss the early days of this podcast where 
you know, you had these Scooby-Doo type stories. You had like, <laughs> who is actually behind this? Oh, let's rip off the face mask. And it's actually, you know, this communist spy who was engaged in this sort of ludicrous Scooby-Doo type antics. And it's like, I sort of miss the plottiness of the early Marvel Universe these days. There's very little plot. There's just like, there's a misunderstanding or a correct understanding. And these people are just wailing on each other for 20 pages. And I think that Stanley is leaning into Jack Kirby's strengths and is like, well, Jack Kirby's really good at showing people just absolutely wailing on each other for 20 pages. So let's just go and do that. But I kind of miss the pontiness of early Marvel comics. There's no absolutely no reason to pick on this particular issue for that complaint. But On the other hand, I remember when we were hitting Hulk, I think issue two, uh, you were talking about how the plot you know, made the characters have to go from the Soviet Union to the United States, the Soviet Union to the United States, like, you know, all over the place. And you're like, oh, man, you could have plot this stuff much more efficiently. Well, I think he has corrected. Uh, it sounds like you might you think he might have overcorrected at this. Point. Yeah, but to but, a certain but, extent, I think he overcorrected. But, you know, that is part of, I think, what, what our whole project is here is to see how that stuff changes over time. And yeah, so we are we are noting some of that change. Yeah, this is a perfectly fun issue. I love the, I always like the Brotherhood interacting with each other. I think Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch are very strong characters, you know, as is Toad, as is Mastermind, as is Magneto. And of course, uh, Submariner is always great. So a bunch of great tastes that taste great together. Yeah, uh, Submariner is always great, except in his own book. I'm not a big fan of it when he gets his own book. Later, yeah, but, I uh, but I, I, def I definitely like him as a guest star slash villain. <laughs> uh, I love his ambiguity. And, you know, you were saying earlier that both Submariner and Hulk are situations of, hey, Stan, get a room. You you need to give this this character their own book. Don't they both end up in the same book eventually when they when yes. he does do that? Yes. So he gives both of them the same book. So they're they're sort of an odd couple of characters that he wanted to bring back, but um, had not been able to sustain stuff on their own before that. Yeah. All right. So um, this has been a long recording session. <laughs> so um, all right. Well, let's thank you for taking this. We've one. still got an issue. You realize what? We haven't done Avengers number six. <sighs> okay. <laughs> um. All righty. So, uh, <laughs> so folks, let's do, we're not done. Let's do Avengers number six. <laughs> I should point out it is currently 1239 in Greensboro, North Carolina, where Steve lives. It is. Let's, we, we must complete this grim death march and, uh, we <laughs> must do Avengers number six. Okay. Yes. Have we got a tale for you? Please don't frustrate us. You've got to read it. Introducing Zemo and his Masters of Evil. So now this is interesting because Zemo gets introduced twice this month. He gets introduced in this issue, and he also gets introduced over in Sergeant Fury. So you were always saying we should cover Sergeant Fury every once in a while. If ever we were going to do it, it would have been this month. But obviously this <laughs> month is a little overstuffed. So we're skipping the other half of Zemo's introduction over in Sergeant Fury, and we are just going to do his modern day introduction here. Although, as they point out, we did see Zemo before, because in Avengers number four, we saw somebody shooting off the rocket that killed Bucky, but we didn't see his face. Well, now we get to see his face, and we find out why we didn't get to see his face, because he has no face, because he has a hood permanently glued onto his head. Now, so, um, one thing that I was surprised by was I, I went back to, you know, just do a little bit of Googling on Baron Zemo. I had not known, until I was 50 years old here, that Baron Zemo was first invented this month in Marvel Comics. I oh, thought yeah. he actually had been 
a Captain America villain in the World War II era comics. But nope. apparently, no. Nope. No. Nope. So, yeah. uh, so then we begin the issue, and we begin with one of my favorite things in Marvel Comics, and this makes me utterly alone. I love an aspect of Marvel Comics that nobody else loves, and that is I love Captain America's glove magnets. I absolutely love his glove magnets. I well, love so, the idea. Well, so does Kevin Feige. <laughs> they've, they've definitely gone with that in the uh No, in the they MCU. haven't. They haven't. They, they have. did just as with in the both the comics and the movies. They start off with no glove magnets and they're like, nope, he just has an amazing ability to bounce the shield off 30 different things and have it come flying back into his hand. And then in both cases, they then belatedly realize, okay, this makes no sense. We got to give him glove magnets to reattract, reattract the shield to him. So here we have this, as far as I'm concerned, the most major plot development we, that ever occurs in all of Marvel comics here in Avengers number six. We have the addition of Iron Man has added magnets to Captain America's gloves to pull the shield back towards him. Makes so much more sense. But then later they will specifically force wear this and go like, nope, nope, nope. He doesn't have glove magnets. He's just able to bounce it back very carefully and precisely. And well, they do at, the same at, thing. At least, at least, at least they, they, uh, they're fair about it. They say, oh yeah, no, Tony Stark put this stuff in my shield, but then I just realized uh, I don't like it as much. So I've gotten rid of it. But they do the exact same thing in the MCU. In the MCU... I was so happy in Avengers Age of Ultron where they suddenly had the glove magnets and they were, you know, like Joss Whedon was like, this is ridiculous. I can't be expected to shoot every shot in a way where the shield would just magically bounce right back to him. I need to just go ahead and give him glove magnets so that it could all make so much more sense that way. And then, but by the time you get to the next movie, Captain America Civil War, there are no glove magnets and he's just bouncing it particularly peculiarly again and at one point spider-man in that movie says wow that thing does not obey the rules of physics at all and it gets a big laugh but it's also like <laughs> yeah no joke and uh and i'm like you had the glove magnets in both cases i'm like you had glove magnets you had solved this problem you need to keep the glove magnets so as far as i'm concerned in my head canon, every single captain america story ever he has glove magnets and in and in the MCU as well, in every single MCU movie, just because they're not showing us glove magnets, he still has them. He is always using them because otherwise it just makes no sense. So anyway. Now, now, of course, later they retcon this thing to have always been some either vibranium or adamantium or some combination of the two. And it's just a solid disc. So um, when they retcon that as such, I'm not sure what that does to this sequence about Iron Man having filled the whole thing with electronic gizmos. Maybe he built him a whole new shield. I don't know. But yeah. <laughs> it's something that did bother me a little bit. They seemed very hot and bothered about something in their last issue, but apparently that didn't turn out to be a major uh, crisis because now they're just messing around with and gizmos to caps gloves. But once again, I think we have the third time this month where we have the heroes just going like, say, there's something I was just thinking about apropos of nothing. I wonder if we'll ever run into that person again. And uh, indeed it happens. So in this case, they're talking about like, he's like, oh yeah, I've got this fancy new shield gizmo. Gee, I wish Bucky could have seen it. And it's like going, you know, and it's like, and they're like, yeah, you know, we all feel bad about Bucky. And he says, oh, I don't feel bad about Bucky. I want revenge. I want revenge on the one who killed him. And well, as it turns out, here is the one who killed him, uh, who is 
an ex-Nazi named Zemo, or I guess uh, unrepentant Nazi named Zemo, who is hanging out with his Inca slaves in South America, seemingly, um, who they carry around with or, a little litter or, and that they... Or Amazon or Amazon slaves or something like that, yeah. Because uh, you see mountains, but then you see jungle, too. So I don't know exactly where it is. But yeah, they carry him around a little litter, then they form a little human red carpet for him to walk on <laughs> as he goes to the land. His pilot lands and says, uh, hey, I brought you a magazine from America. It's all about how Captain America's back. And the great panel of him having a hissy fit as he stamps on the paper and is so angry about it. And he says, Captain America... That was the guy I was hanging around making glue. So this is Marvel's second glue-themed villain. And in case you're hoping, I hope they meet. Well, don't worry. You won't have to wait long. So then I was hanging out making glue one day and Captain America accidentally dumped a bunch of glue on my head. And I've had this hood glued on my face ever since. And uh, I hate it. He says, oh, I hate Captain America so much. But then, hey, I killed Bucky. So that was awesome. Now I got to go get Captain America. I have a plan. He gathers all of the Avengers solo villains and puts them together in a team called the Masters of Evil. Now you're like, now wait, don't the X-Men fight villains called the Brotherhood of Evil? Isn't it a little much to have the Masters of Evil and the Brotherhood of Evil in these two parallel books? But yes, they do. So then he goes ahead and gets together these various villains of the individual adventures. So he gets together the Black Knight, who usually fights Ant-Man, or who once fought Ant-Man, the Melter, who once fought Iron Man, the Radioactive Man, who once fought Thor, and of course himself, who fights Captain America. And then he gives them all glue guns. So once again, we've got lots of glue gun technology in the Marvel Universe. And he has them fly all around New York, shooting paste all over everything. His fancy Zemo paste. I believe that's called Adhesive X. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you. And so the Melter is using his melting ray, which is a far more effective weapon. But then he's like, oh, right, I'm supposed to be using the glue gun. Okay, fine. (laughs) And then he shoots some glue at everybody. The Avengers attack. The Avengers... at first, and this is classic comic storytelling, where at first they make the mistake of attacking the villain who is specifically designed to fight them, and then eventually in the issue they realize, oh no, we should attack the villain who is not designed to fight us. And but they, there's sort of an awesome panel where Giant Man and Captain America end up stuck in a huge pile of glue, and then they turn it into a giant water ski as they're pulled around by a truck. Uh, it's all rather bizarre. Um, and, uh, I I generally really like that sequence. I, I especially like the pan, the big panel on the top of page eight. Um, but on the on panel three in the middle of the page on the right, the perspective of the size of the characters in that makes absolutely <laughs> no sense. Iron Man is giant based on. I mean, look at Captain America, who's supposed to be human sized next to Giant Man, and then way off in the distance is Iron Man, who's about twice the size of Captain America. It's just one of those things where it's like, uh, you know, they're they're doing a lot of work very quickly. <laughs> you know? It's true. So then they're all fighting their various villains. They're not doing very well. Suddenly, Zemo lands on his bizarre sort of egg-shaped helicopter. Radioactive Man says, we better pick up their trail before they find a solution for adhesive X. Suddenly, Zemo is like, whoa, 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 it's a solution for adhesive X. I never thought of that. If anyone can find it, the Avengers can. If I can steal it from them, I can finally get this hood off my head. And so suddenly it's like, okay, new plan. We're actually going to hope that they defeat our master plan here. So then the Wasp, this is always a thing where people, where it's like, why doesn't she just grow to normal size? But instead, she has to go to great lengths to 
make a phone call even while she's tiny. And she gets the clever idea. And this is totally her idea. None of the men have this idea and tell her to do it. She just completely on her and it's like, what about Pace Pop Pete? We've got another Pace-themed villain in the Marvel Universe. Maybe he can solve it. And indeed he can. He says, I'll do anything to get me out of jail sooner. And he has, and then Wasp says, we're in luck. Pace Pop Pete has a super dissolver of his own, which can dissolve any adhesive. It's stored in a warehouse uptown in a metal drum. Someone write down this address. So then they go and get it. Sure enough, it works just fine. And then they're like, all right, let's go ahead. And they come up with a clever plan. They have, <laughs> you would think this is a very important job. They would do it themselves. But instead, they farm it out to the teen brigade to find the bad guys, find their big canisters of adhesive X, and swap them out for canisters of adhesive dissolver. Now, very luckily, Zemo says, you know, all those places you sprayed with adhesive before, why don't you go out and spray them again just to give them a second coat? <laughs> And they're like, okay, instead of like going to cover new areas of the city with adhesive that we haven't covered with adhesive yet, let's go back to all the other areas we already covered with adhesive and give them a second coat. But whoops, their adhesive has been replaced with dissolver, and they're actually freeing, it says, the first to spray the contents of his cylinder is the high-flying Black Knight, totally unaware that he is freeing the city rather than imprisoning it. And it is an awesome panel on the top of page 14 of the Black Knight flying around with his adhesive dissolving on his big flying steed. At this point, the Avengers have figured out, fight the one who is not specifically designed to fight you. So then the Thor fights Black Knight, that goes well. Giant Man fights Radioactive Man, that goes well. And then suddenly Iron Man ends up fighting the Melter. It's like, Iron Man, you didn't get the memo here. You're supposed to not <laughs> find the person who is specifically designed to fight you. And you, at this point, has already fallen apart a couple pages later. And uh, you're not supposed to be fighting the Belter, but he does and beats him just fine. Captain America ends up fighting Zemo and they get into an awesome sort of curvy slugfest that goes on for a couple pages. Finally, the pilot is like, oh, why don't I just shoot and kill Captain America? And he does, but the Wasp uh, heroically gets in and sends his shot awry by putting a little pebble inside his gun, or I guess puts a nail inside his gun. You would think that would make a gun more deadly to have a nail inside of it, but apparently not. They catch the pilot, but Zemo gets away. But then Kathmer is like, I'm not worried that Zemo got away because I just put a canister of nerve gas in his helicopter. And indeed, they see the helicopter plummeting to the ground far away and assume well, the cops will then arrest Zemo. Tear gas. But yes. What did I say? <laughs> you said nerve gas, which would be <laughs> no, a That lot. would be more effective. <laughs> It would be more effective. It also would be a little less heroic. <laughs> like, that's it. Now you'll get the VX gas. <laughs> Cyclone B. But oh, there's, there's a, well, he's a Nazi. But <laughs> he is a Nazi. Yes, you're. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You have this bizarre thing where, like, Stanley just loves hypnotism, uh, as seen in Doctor Strange this week. But you also, like, at one point, Zemo has a hypno gun and hypnotizes the Teen Brigade. Oh, well, that's a big plot point. How's that going to pay off? It doesn't at all. They do nothing while hypnotized. And then, but it does turn out that Tony has a whirling palm signaler in his built into his outfit that can dehypnotize people. So that should come in handy. And he does dehypnotize him, even though they did no harm whatsoever while they were hypnotized. Anyway, we got a final page at the end where the <laughs> Thor looks like he's having a lot of fun riding the flying horse. And they're like, gosh, Thor, are you going to keep Black Knight's winged horse? And Thor says, I can't, Rick. Even though he's a prisoner, it's still his by law. And uh, is clearly bummed about this. And then uh, <laughs> the Wasp says, the only thing you guys like better than fighting is talking about it afterwards. So 
that is Avengers number six. This is obviously a huge issue. We have the introduction of Zemo. We have the introduction of the Masters of Evil. Much Zemo will last a surprisingly short amount of time. The original yeah. Zemo is killed only seven issues later. Uh, Spoiler alert. Eight issues later. Nine issues later. I guess he's killed in issue 15 or something, which is like nine issues after this. Then his son, Baron Zemo, will take over and get a lot of views. Obviously, Zemo became the big villain in Captain America Civil War movie, and then who then returns in the Falcon Winter Soldier TV show. And uh, this is a major issue. And the Masters of Evil, even more so, became major Avengers villains from this point on. If the whole point of the Avengers is to gather these solo heroes who have their own solo comics to then gather up solo villains that they fought in those solo comics and have them team up to fight the team just makes sense. And it's a pretty awesome story. It's uh, and it's always clever to have them like, oh, let's fight the people who we're not supposed to be fighting. And it uh, it's just a really awesome story. This is a, you know, the most monumentous issue that we have had this month of Marvel Comics. And uh, one that will have a huge impact going forward and is a really fun issue. I would say the one real thing to detract from this issue is, oh, dear God, you already had a pace theme villain. Did you really need another one? And so the general paciness of this issue, like, oh, dear God, the paste, um, that, <laughs> that's the one thing that detracts from this issue. Uh, although, you know, as you pointed out, at least they brought both of them together and actually had them interact in some way here. Uh, a few things about this. One you know, I, I know I said from the very beginning that uh, Paul Reinman is my favorite pre-Synot Kirby anchor. Uh, I've got to say, going back through this again, I think Chick Stone's a tie. He just really does fantastic work on this stuff. And uh, this issue in particular, the art generally looks great, with the exception of that one perspective issue that I was making fun of earlier. Overall, it's just really fantastically done. Yeah, it is a little bit, you know, I know that the whole thing about him enslaving this, like, South American tribe is supposed to just show like what a brutal, horrible person that he is. But it does just seem really demeaning to have these brown skinned people, you know, leaning over to use their backs as a way to keep his feet from having to touch the ground kind of thing. And it's a little bit like, eh, I don't know, but yeah, let's see. Uh, yeah, so I really disliked the Black Knight when he was introduced in, what was it, Giant Man's book, I believe. Yeah. Um, but I really like him a lot more in this case. I think Kirby just handles him better than, yeah, uh, than Dick Ayers did. For some reason, they make a point that the melter has now modified his, uh, melting thing so that it can melt all forms of metal. Oh, wait. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> the rampaging archvillain who has the power to melt all forms of iron. And then in the very same panel, he thinks to himself, and I'm more powerful than ever now since Zemo gave me the ability to melt all forms of metal instead of just iron. Uh, but that doesn't really pay off anywhere in here, which is a little bit no. odd. You know, I would think like, oh, well, here's where he melts some aluminum or something like that. Uh, as I said, you know, a lot of the art in here is just fantastic. The top panel on page eight, that panel you were talking about where Black Knight is spraying the paste gas down on everything. is just a fantastic downshot of a New York City block and the, it is. the Black Knight flying above it on his steed. Just little bitty things like on the bottom, in the last panel on page 15, the little figure of Thor swirling his hammer as he's like rearing back. Uh, just has such power and dynamism to it. It's really, really nice. 
Uh, and there was one more panel in particular that I wanted to point out that was just really spectacular. Panel two on page 20, where Nemo is trying to punch Cap in the face and Cap is dodging, but he clearly looks really quite scared. You know? yeah. And just the look on his face and just the way that Kirby and Chick Stone uh, work together on that panel and the next panel, just basically this whole page. You know, I like the next panel right after it where uh, Cap is doing the backflip and kicking Zemo. It's just just some masterful, masterful stuff. You know, when we first started doing this, you know, I was talking about how I probably am not as big a fan of either Kirby's or Ditko's art as you are, but I'm starting to really find some places where I make exceptions to that. I'm like, no, this really is just really, really nice. <laughs> this issue has a lot of it. Yep. I'm glad you're coming around. I, uh, I'm just, I certainly doing this podcast has made me just even more appreciative of Kirby and Ditko and uh, yeah. their, their amazing abilities. Yeah. Okay. So, America, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for giving us a little time off uh, while we took care of other stuff. And we are back. We are here to entertain you, and we will keep doing it. Uh, and in addition to America, uh, I would like to thank Italy and the UK and Ireland and Russia and all the other and Germany and uh, all the other places where we have listeners. I am once again, I think I mentioned this before. I am curious about our regular listener in Osimo, Italy. Um, there is someone in Osimo who is a loyal listener. And I'm like, I would like to hear from that person, if at all possible. <laughs> so, go to secretsofstory.com and comment on the comments of this post of yes this and or on the facebook page yes. so thank you everybody i really appreciate it this is always fun and take care till next time and uh stay safe out there bye everybody take care thank you for listening to marvel reread club Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on Marvel Reread Club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. See you next time.